came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 30th of November. 2018. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. Today, we present episode four in our Astro Tour series, featuring interviews I did on a two and a half thousand kilometre Astro Tour of Australia's finest eastern state radio and optical observatories. Last week, we were at Narrabri. So now, on our return journey down the Newell Highway, we caught up with John Sarkissian, the operations scientist at the CSIRO Observatory at Parks. Now, unfortunately, we're not going to have Dr Ian Musgrave's What's Up Doc in this episode due to a Skype bandwidth failure. But he has given me the go-ahead to read directly from his Astro blog, and you can find that. Just do an internet search for Astroblog. It comes up as number one. And of course, we'll finish off the episode with some news. Not least of which is the successful landing by NASA of their InSight mission on Mars. So here we go. We're talking with John Sarkissian. Hello, John. Hello, Brendan. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Today we are speaking with John Sarkissian, who is the operations scientist at CSIRO Parks Observatory. We first spoke with John two years ago when he gave us a sensational interview celebrating 55 years of amazing observations and continual upgrades and refinements to this iconic dish and how Parks has exceeded its original 20-year lifespan by an additional 40 years almost. And in John's case... He jokes he's 22 years into an 11-month contract. In a later episode, he told us how the dish was used successfully to hunt for garden variety and exotic pulsars, and how it's found the first and many more FRBs, and is chasing down gravitational waves, and is part of the SETI Breakthrough Listen project, searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. He also introduced our audience to Australia's role in the SKA, the Murchison Widefield Array and ASCAP. Now, we have recently interviewed your colleague, Dr Jane Kazmarek, about her role in commissioning the new UWL ultra-wideband receiver system here. Can you tell us, John, about your work in enabling this latest upgrade to your dish? Now, I just called it your dish and you have a very long history with it. Tell us about your latest work to make it, or her, 
more sensitive, agile and versatile. What was your role and what other teams were involved and how did you go about it? Okay, well, the, the new UWL receiver, which is the, the ultra-wideband low-frequency receiver, has a bandwidth of 4 gigahertz, which is really quite astonishing in regards to radio astronomy. Normally, radio receivers have a relatively small bandwidth, you know, only a few hundred megahertz. This is 4 gigahertz wide, yeah. and it's going to open up an entirely new range of observations that we can do here. The receiver was built over the last two years or so, and earlier this year, we actually had it installed on the telescope, and we're currently in the commissioning of the, the receiver, ironing out all the bugs and making sure that everything's working and making sure that the software works and, and everything's ready to go when it's fully commissioned. We have quite a large team of people working on it. There's Dr. Jane Kazmarek, who's the commissioning astronomer, but we also have the project scientists and project engineers that are based in our headquarters in Sydney who've been working on it and helping to iron out all the bugs and, and so on. We have all the engineers that designed it, the astronomers who have proposed projects for it, and the people here have been installing and maintaining it. And my role was to make sure that the receiver was functioning correctly in terms of it was pointing correctly and it was focused and the basic stuff, if you like. I've also used it for various observations since we've um, had it installed. Very shortly, we'll be able to observe with the full bandwidth, the full 4 gigahertz bandwidth, which will literally open up the full power of the receiver and allow us to do some really incredible work. One of the drawbacks, however, is that having such a large bandwidth, we're going to see a lot of radio stations and other interfering signals. And so one of the, the great issues that we're facing is what we call radio frequency interference, or RFI as we yep. refer to it. And one of the roles that Jane has is to try and identify some of the sources of RFI. Usually it's distant radio stations or mobile phone towers, MBN, wireless, yeah. you name it. Satellites? It's satellites, it's, yep. it's all there. Yep. There are ways that we can mitigate the issue and eliminate it entirely if we can using filters or just don't observe in, in a particular direction when a satellite's passing nearby and some. But we're hopeful that we'll be able to minimise the effects of all that. My role also is to, to train the astronomers, make sure that they, they know how to use the receiver and that everything's working for them and to work with everyone to get the best possible data with it. Fantastic, John. Now, I mentioned Breakthrough Listen earlier, and I just read a most recent paper you're cited in as a co-author. It's published earlier this year in RxEV called The Breakthrough Listen Search for Intelligent Life, Wide Bandwidth Digital Instrumentation <laughs> for the CSIRO Park 64-metre Telescope. Does this mean SETI and the search for aliens is becoming mainstream, John? Tell us about parks and the scope of this search project. Okay. SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It's essentially the, the search for alien civilizations, if you like, that are very distant from us, hopefully, that they exist. And we have a contract with the Breakthrough Listen Foundation in the United States over the next five years to spend a quarter of the telescope's observing time scanning the, the nearest one million stars, looking for signs of radio emissions from possible alien civilizations and so on. But they're also scanning the entire Milky Way visible from, from here and also some of the more the nearby galaxies also in the hope that they can find emissions that are of artificial origin. In addition to that, they found lots of emissions that are of natural origin. For example, in March, they detected a fast radio burst for the first time with their equipment. 
And using their equipment, they were able to analyze that in some pretty high resolution, great detail that we couldn't do with our own equipment at the time. We can now, but not at that time. And so that was exciting because an FRB is something similar to what you would expect to find from another alien civilization. So it was great that they were able to to do that and to to verify it and check that everything really is working and so on. But the scope of this is, is quite enormous, really. The Breakthrough Listen SETI project involves um, not just radio, but optical facilities, like looking for bursts of laser beams that may be aliens using lasers rather than radio. But the truth is that the only place in the entire universe that we know for certain that there is life is right here on the Earth. We haven't even found microbes on Mars or anywhere else, you know. And so when you only have a sample of one, (laughs) it's very hard to do science with that. And so that's why it's a search. And so we don't even know what kind of signals they may be emitting. We just assume they're like us, you know, but they could be very different. Here on the Earth, our atmosphere is transparent to radio waves and to visible light, but it blocks out a lot of the infrared, ultraviolet and X-rays, gamma rays, thank goodness. But another alien world might be very different, you know, it may block out different, depends on their atmosphere and and their environment, and may be operating in a different end of it. So... For the simple fact that we don't know what's out there, we just assume that for the time being, we'll assume that they're, they're like us. They yep. do what we do. And so we go out and we look for things that would resemble what we would send out. Yep. Okay. So he says, if we were on that alien planet, what would we look like to people here look, watching it? And that's what we, we're looking for. Now, we always have to be prepared for the unknowns, you know, what, mm. the unexpected. Now, oh, hang on. That's different now. And and then have a closer look. And that was the example of the FRB. They were looking for something else. They found that and they said, oh, no, that's an actual FRB they found. And so the chances of finding intelligent civilizations, I think, are very small, very, very small. But the significance of a find, if, if we do find, is enormous. And so for that reason, I think it's a, it's a very worthwhile project. And it'll just totally reshape our understanding not just of the universe, but but us. And so I think it's extremely worthwhile for us to be doing this. And in order to do that, we need new equipment, new facilities to do it, because these signals will be weak and they'll be under exotic nature that we have no understanding of. So we have to be prepared to be surprised. And that's why the UWL, with its wide bandwidth, is so important, because we don't know what frequencies they're observing. So if we have a receiver that has a very narrow range of frequencies that we can observe, then, you know, what if the signal is just outside that band? We would have been pointing in the right direction at the right time, in the right, doing everything with the right equipment, but wrong frequency. We weren't yep. observing it. And so having a wide band receiver means that we can cover as big a chunk of the, the spectrum as possible that we can at this time, and therefore, you know, uh, maximize our opportunity to find something. So we're not only looking in the right direction at the right time with the right equipment, but the right frequency too. So all of these have to converge. That's why the Breakthrough Listen people are excited by the receiver, because it means you know, it, it maximizes their opportunities. In the radio wavelengths, the search involves the Parkes Telescope for searching the Southern Hemisphere skies. The Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, in the United States, will look at the Northern Hemisphere. But they have also signed an agreement for the use of the fast radio telescope in China. It's a half kilometer diameter telescope, amazing instrument. It'd be extremely sensitive, which is what you want. And that'll be ideal for looking at the nearest galaxies, if you like, because they're very distant. 
And recently they signed an understanding with the MECAP project in South Africa to use that facility. And that'll be, again, be really great for the sensitivity and to help localize the, the signal if they do find it. And so it's really exciting. It's being supported to the tune of about $100 million over 10 years. Our contract is for five years. Possibility of a further extension after that. It really is a, a great opportunity for us. It's, it's what the telescope does best, yeah. you know. It's a versatile instrument. We can do lots of different types of observations very quickly. And it's playing to our strengths as a radio telescope. Of course, the center of the Milky Way passes directly overhead from here. And so this is the, I, I think, one of the, the best places to because you see the richest, most interesting parts of the galaxy easily accessible for us. So if anything's going to be found, there's a good chance that it'll be found here. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and if we do find something, I promise you that you'll be the first to know, you know, you along with about 7 billion other people. <laughs> because the idea is that once something is found and it's verified by another observatory, they're just going to announce it because there's no way they can keep someone like that quiet for, for so long. Exactly. Now that will upset the conspiracy theorists, John. To oh, know well. that, that scientists like telling everything they know because that's how they get their next funding. Well, exactly, you know. Um, <laughs> we'd like to be... Well, one thing, because the sky's accessible to everyone, we can't stop people from observing. It's, it's pointless making it stuff up because someone else can go and say, no, it's not. It's nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good way to keep everyone in check, if you like. Astronomy, by its nature, is very open. And that's how the knowledge is passed on and... People like to build on the knowledge they, they have. Yep. They don't want to keep reinventing the wheel, just keep doing the same thing that people have done, which is why here at Parks, we're always commissioning new receivers, new instruments, new processing equipment, the back ends as we refer to it, because we want to continually push the boundaries of what we're capable of doing with our technology and so on. And we want to discover things and build on what's come before, you know, so that the people who come after have something else to work on. Isaac Newton put it well, you know, when he said in his, in his old age, you know, if I've seen further than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. And so we like to do the same thing. Parks is one of the Olympian sites of world science. And so, you know, it's got broad shoulders and a lot of people standing on it. And so people can see further away and discover more things with our instrument. And that's, that's why it's such an enjoyable place to work. Fantastic. And this is where you've built a lot of PhDs as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people have built fantastic careers out of working here and doing research here. And with the upgrades that we've done and the, the new equipment we're commissioning and so on, there's many more years of work ahead of the telescope, and I'm sure many more careers will be established and, and founded here too, I guess. So that, that's exciting. Now, we talked about light pollution. We spoke with Lisa Harvey-Smith recently about light pollution and you mentioned earlier about mitigating RFI. Now we've never talked in this show about cryogenics and I know you use it here. Can you just paint the picture of what cryogenics is and how it helps you to get clearer, sharper, better pictures? Yeah, the telescope is extremely sensitive and so the signals that we're trying to detect are incredibly weak. Okay, It's difficult to appreciate how weak the signals are. Because the energy of the photons, the electromagnetic radiation that we detect, scales with the inverse of the wavelength. So, for example, if radio waves are typically a million times longer than, than light waves. And so the, the energy is correspondingly less. So you'll get a million times less energy from a single photon in radio as you would in, in the visible yep. light. 
And so the signals are very weak. The demonstration I like to do is, if you imagine you had a feather and you just released it and it slowly drifted down and, and struck the floor, gently like that, well, the energy that feather expends when it strikes the floor is more than all the energy ever collected by every radio telescope ever built yep. in terms of the astronomical data. And that's why radio telescopes have to be so large. You want as large a collecting area as possible to collect enough of that feeble energy so that you have enough signal to analyze and study. To put it another way, people's mobile phones. If you were to switch on a mobile phone and place it on the surface of the moon, your phone would be one of the strongest radio sources in the sky for us. It would be exceeded by the moon itself, the sun and a few other objects, but we'd have no trouble detecting it from the moon. That's how sensitive the instrument is. And so if we can detect it from the moon, we have really no trouble detecting it from the car parks here. So <laughs> that's why we ask people to switch all their yeah. equipment off and some. So the signals we're trying to detect are very, very weak. In fact, they're weaker than the static that's generated within the electronics of the receiver. Okay. And the static is being generated not just from the environment around us, you know, the air and, and other yeah. things, but in the electronics. So if you imagine when something is, is warm, it means the atoms within that object are, are vibrating rapidly, yep. very like that, like crazy. And that's generating the, what we call the radio noise, or static, people would, would understand it as. And so what you want to do is you want to minimize that at least. You know, you may not be able to control some other things, but at least that's something you can control. And the way you do it is by cooling the receivers. If you could drop the temperature sufficiently so that that rapid vibration of the atoms in place like this just vibrating like crazy, if you could just do it to a gentle knocking, if you like, then that static level plummets. And so if you've got your static level up here somewhere and the signal you want to detect way down below that level, yeah. then there's no way you'll see the signal. But if you could drop, if you could cool the receiver so that the static level, the noise as we call it, could drop below the signal you want to detect, and then observe over a long time, you can boost that signal to noise ratio yep. and boost it up. And so it's a good idea to have receivers that are cryogenically cooled down to temperatures around, say, 200 degrees Celsius, yep. minus 200 degrees Celsius. In fact, we cool our receivers, parts of the receivers, down to about 20 Kelvin, which is about minus 253 degrees Celsius. And on some of them, some of the, the new receivers can go even lower still, yep. you know, down to maybe 17, 18 Kelvin. So extremely, extremely cold. And that allows the receiver to be more sensitive to the fainter signals and, and boost that signal-to-noise ratio. And combined with the fact that we have a large collecting area, and if we observe something over a long time, we can boost that signal even more and therefore see very, very faint signals. The best way you can imagine is if you're taking a scene of a, of a dark sky at night, for example, and you have your camera and you open your shutter, then you're going to have to expose for, for many minutes or, or whatever to, so that you collect enough light it falls on your CCD chip so you can see the stars. If you take a hundredth second exposure like you would in daylight, it'll just be black. You yep. won't even see anything. And so you want to build up the image that way. Also, you'll notice that if your camera is warm, then there'll be signal in the chips. And so you end up with a, a grainy image. But if you can cool your camera before you take a, a picture of the night sky, you actually eliminate some of that, that the graininess, the noise yep. in the chip. And it's exactly the same as we do with the radio telescope. We cool the receiver to get rid of the noise 
and we can then observe for a long time. We have a large aperture, so that's equivalent to you opening up your lens to let yep. more light in. And so what we do is exactly analogous to, to optical you know, photography, you know, normal visual photography, the, the, the equipment that you would use yep. in everyday life. You know. Cool the receiver, open up your aperture, and observe for a long time, and you'll record extremely faint stars and, and detail. And it's exactly what we do with radio. It seems more sophisticated and more complex because it, there's a lot of electronics involved in, yep. in doing all that, but the, the ideas are exactly the same. You know, there's nothing revolutionary in, in what we do. It's, it's what we do, what everyone does. It's the engineering side of it that, that's the challenging part to yep. make it happen. But we're able to do it, and, um, and that's why this telescope is such a successful instrument. We were able to build these extremely sensitive receivers and do all these different types of observations very quickly. I'm looking at your office window right mm -hmm. now, John. Does that mean that you're piping liquid hydrogen or liquid helium okay. up to the focus cabin up there? Right, okay. What we do is we, we use compressed helium gas. If we were to get liquid helium, for example, that would we'd have to cool it to 4 Kelvin, which is like minus 269 degrees Celsius. And that is really hard to handle, very, yep. very hard. Yep. So what we do instead is we compress helium gas and then send that up via some lines, little yep. pipe work, up to the receivers that then circulate through the receivers and then back down again in the closed cycle refrigeration yep. loop. And that gets us down to around 20 Kelvin or so. And that's good enough. To get down to, to 4 Kelvin, even more where the helium is, is in a liquid state, then that requires so much more work. It doesn't justify yep. the, the extra effort and, and cost and, and danger in using liquid yeah. helium. Yeah. And so we use compressed helium gas in a closed cycle refrigeration loop to cool our receivers, and, and it works, works beautifully. Fantastic. Now, you've told us how the dish has been continually upgraded for the mm -hmm. almost 60 years now, and this latest UWL receiver looks fantastic. And I know you guys keep on looking into the future. What's next for you? Have you got other plans in the pipeline for your next developments? Yeah. Well, in recent years, the last decade, the CSIRO has been developing what we call PATH receiver technology. It's a phased array feed receiver. The receivers that we have, the conventional receivers like the UWL, the ultra-wideband low-frequency receiver, is essentially a single pixel receiver. You can look at just a single point on the sky at any one time. And people have been building the receivers like this for, for decades now. But in the last decade or so, the CSIRO has developed this pattern where we have a phased array feed where rather than detect the, the radio waves that are brought to the focus and concentrated there, we sample, if you like, the electric field at, on the focal plane with, with about 188 separate elements, little yep. little dipole antennas just in, clustered in the round. It looks like a little checkerboard design when you look at it. And each one of those, we're able to combine the signals in such a way that we can produce up to 36 beams on the sky. That is, look at 36 points simultaneously on the sky. And that is really fantastic because you can go from a single pixel to 36 pixels in one shot, okay, with a single new PATH receiver. Yep. And we've developed that for the new ASCAP telescopes that are in Western Australia. And in Where fact, you've just come back I've, from? <laughs> I just, just two days ago, I was there in remote Western Australia. And it's working beautifully there. It's now fully commissioned. All 36 antennas yeah. each have these paths. 
and it's doing great work and there'll be some really great discoveries and announcements coming up in the near future with that. So that's really fantastic. But they operate at room temperature, essentially, just the ambient oh, yeah. temperature. But they're very, very sensitive and, and they, they work beautifully. But what we want to do is develop one for the Parkes telescope, but cool it so that we have this cooled path on the telescope that can generate 36 beams on the sky. Yeah. So we will not, not only be looking at just a single point, but 36 beams yeah. simultaneously with high sensitivity because we were able to cool it and get the most out of the telescope. And that's really exciting. And you can think of it as going from a single pixel to 36 pixel radio camera. Yeah. You know, for most people, 36 pixels, you know, <laughs> what? It's nothing, you know. Well, in optical, yeah, you know, when you have 20 megapixel cameras yeah. or more nowadays, yeah, sure, 36 doesn't seem like a lot, okay? But remember, the wavelengths are a million times longer. Yep. So going from one pixel, if you like, to 36 is really an achievement, really quite good. And what that means is that we can observe 36 positions on the sky simultaneously. So if we're doing surveys of the sky, we can do it 36 times faster. Yep. So with the paths on the ASCAP telescope, they can essentially, because they're all 12-meter diameter antennas there, they see an enormous part of the sky, equivalent to 100 times the size of the moon on the sky at any one time. And so they can survey the entire sky in a single day, which with the Parkes telescope, using our more conventional receivers, would take us five years to do. Yep. So they can do what we did in five years in just one day yep. and then do it again the next day and the next day. So they can look for things that have changed in the sky very rapidly, which we can't do here. But with the PATH on the Parkes telescope, we'll be able to do, on a smaller scale, the same thing and do a lot of these really fascinating, wonderful projects and surveys at high sensitivity. And we're hoping to have a, a cool path on the telescope within the next few years. Yep. But for the time being, we'll commission the UWL, make sure that's working <laughs> and doing great science, which I'm sure it will. And then, you know, we'll have the, the cool path on the telescope too. So fingers crossed we can get the funding for that and, and do it. But... It's, again, an example of what we do here at Parks. You know, we don't rest on our roles. We're always thinking to the future, building new receivers, pushing the boundaries of what's capable in technology and so on. Something like that would be great for looking for fast radio bursts because we can see a big chunk of the sky at high sensitivity and hopefully be able to localise it in some. But other telescopes are, are looking to do that sort of thing also, especially ASCAP and so on. But, you know, FRBs were discovered here at Parks. Yeah. And I think to date, we, we found the majority of them too. Although that we may be overtaken shortly with the new instruments coming online. Yep. But again, the discovery of, of FRBs was a demonstration of why Parks is such a great instrument. You know? yep. It wasn't designed to do that, it wasn't, but we had built a new receiver and people had built new processing equipment to go with it and new ways to run the software and so on. And they said, hang on, there's something here. There was no way that could have been done before that you know it was only and really it could only have been done at park because no one else had this, the same equipment that could have done it that rapidly and so on and so um that's why for many years frbs were only being found here no one else was capable yeah. and then they started saying we should be doing something yeah. and only now with the equipment like at ascap and chime and, and elsewhere around the world that new discovery that more are being discovered there because people have decided you know that that is a, a worthwhile field of new yeah. research and yeah. so they're building equipment to to do that to go out and look for it or modifying existing equipment to allow them to do it 
so it really is an exciting thing and the telescope is an exciting instrument to use and we are looking for the things so, but the cool path is, is something that we're looking forward to the cool path really will be a cool instrument you know <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well i'll try and book myself in to come back here in a couple of years john and talk to you about the cool path and all the pulsar research you've done here and the research mm. into gravitational waves really exciting times for parks well Thank you so much, John Sarkissian. It's fantastic to finally meet with you and visit this facility and hear firsthand about this wonderful CSIRO Parks Observatory. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Brennan, and I look forward to speaking with you again and to talk about the great work that we do here. And maybe, you know, when with new discoveries that we make, I promise you and your listeners will be the first to, to hear from us. So. We'll be back. Okay, good on you. <laughs> Thanks, John. Now, before we move over to Ian's Astro blog section, What's Up, Doc? And I have some additional news on that. I'll first report for our Northern Hemisphere observers on the Geminids. Now, this also applies for the Southern Hemisphere, particularly in Australia. The Geminids are visible, but they're probably seen best from somewhere north of Brisbane or Darwin, down south to Melbourne, Hobart, or even Sydney. You'll still be able to see them, but you're not going to see a great number of them. In the Northern Hemisphere, you should be getting some wonderful zenith hourly rates, and you can find them and look them up very easily. For example, in Darwin, our northernmost capital city, the peak occurs between the 13th and the 15th of December. And the good thing is the moon won't be in the sky between 3am and 4am when you'll get your best view of this meteor shower, the Geminids. For northern hemisphere observers, the good news for you is that the radiant rises just after sunset so you don't even have to get up early in the morning you've just got to wait for it to get dark get out there and maybe rug up a bit and watch those meteors flash by in darwin on the 14th at the peak you'll be getting 41 meteors an hour that's if you're in a dark sky site 27 in brisbane or over in perth down south, it gets fewer and fewer, about 22 in Sydney, down to 19 in Melbourne and Hobart. It's further south still. It will only be getting about 14 meteors an hour, so one every uh, four or perhaps even five minutes. And the first trick about watching meteors and seeing them, you don't need binoculars or telescopes. It's a great naked eye event. And the tips are not to stare at one point in the sky. Give your eyes five or ten minutes to get used to the darkness. They will become more sensitive the longer you stay out under a dark sky. So uh, have a bit of patience. Let your eyes roam around the sky. This meteor shower in the southern hemisphere, you look northeast and northwest picking up the meteors as they come past, and do be patient. Sadly, this week we can't speak directly with Dr Ian Musgrave for his What's Up Doc session, so we're going to read directly from his Astro blog. 
The Sky this week, Thursday, November 29 to Thursday, December 6. The last quarter moon is Friday, November 31. Saturn and Mars are visible low in the evening sky. Venus is bright in the morning sky and visited by the moon on December 4. Comet 46P is visible in binoculars and variable star mirror peaks in brightness. The last quarter moon is Friday, November 31. This weekend on Saturday, December 1, if you're looking west about 60 minutes after sunset and if you've got a nice low horizon, you'll see that Saturn is just on the horizon with Mars above it and a bit to the right. Now, about 90 minutes after sunset, if you faced east, you'll see the location of Comet 46P and the variable star Mirror. 46P is rapidly brightening, and it's roughly at magnitude 5.5 now, and it's readily seen as a diverse fuzzy blob in binoculars. It might become bright enough to just see it with the unaided eye later in December. Now, for details of how to find it, you're probably best to go and look at the screen captures and sky charts on Ian's Astro blog. Now, Mirror, the variable star Omicron Seti, it's a star in the constellation of Cetus the Whale, and it's a red giant that pulsates over a period of about 331 days and changes brightness from below naked eye visibility to a peak of around magnitude 2, which is as bright as the third brightest star in the Southern Cross. So it's pretty bright and easy to see. Mirror will peak in its magnitude at the end of this week, and it may stay bright for the rest of a month. So get out and have a look at it. If you follow a line that's drawn between Sirius and Regal, that'll bring you right to Mirror. Now, a few observing notes. We can look forward to Jupiter. It will return to the morning skies in a couple of weeks in mid-December. Mars is in Capricornius and is readily seen in the evening over in the western skies, and it's rapidly dimming and shrinking. And when Sirius rises, Mars is no longer the brightest object in the night sky aside from the moon. In a telescope, you may see a few features, but viewing will be difficult. This week, the gibbous shape of Mars will be obvious. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Saturn is low in the northwestern evening sky in the early evening and is setting not long after sunset. So its closeness to the horizon means it's no longer a good telescopic target. For keen astrophotographers, Tuesday, December 4, next week, looking east about an hour before sunrise, you'll see a nice view of Venus and the crescent moon together. So get out your cameras and do some nice captures. First up, of course, the big news is that two days ago, NASA's InSight mission successfully landed on Mars and will soon be drilling down to inject a seismograph five metres below the surface to study the interior of Mars, Mars quakes and asteroids and meteor impacts. 
The research will inform all future missions to Mars and tell us a lot about both Mars and Earth's formation and geological history. It was a sensational broadcast and was great to watch the landing live on NASA TV. So congrats to all the teams working on the project. The history of landings on Mars is a very checkered one, with more failures than successes by quite a number of space agencies because Mars is a very difficult planet to land on. The atmosphere and gravity are markedly different from ours, so engineers can't conclusively test their systems here on Earth, and all the more kudos to those who really understand the science and maths that underpins these landings. So what else is on Mars Insight now? Curiosity and Opportunity rovers, of course. Please phone home, Oppie. In 2003, the European Space Agency Mars Express Orbiter went into orbit and is still doing great science. Unfortunately, the Beagle 2 from that mission was one of the Mars casualties I mentioned earlier. Also in orbit, we have the 2001 NASA Mars Odyssey, which has been there doing great work for 17 years now. NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has been up there since 2006, and in 2014, India's ISRO Mars Orbiter mission, MOM, was successful, and the images coming back from its colour camera are stunningly beautiful, apart from all the great science they're doing there. Check them out. The pictures are well worth it. The joint ESO-Russian Roscosmos Trace Gas Orbiter went into orbit two years ago, and a key goal of that project is to gain a better understanding of methane and other trace gases present in the Martian atmosphere that could be evidence for possible biological activity. The Trace Gas Orbiter delivered the Schiaparelli demonstration lander on 16 October 2016, which unfortunately crashed on the surface, but they are optimistic that the lessons learnt will spell success for the ExoMars rover, which they have scheduled to land in 2020. It's a really busy place up there, and as Richard Stevenson from the CSIRO NASA CDSCC at Tidbinbilla says, it's a real parking lot up there. So we are really looking forward to getting that data from InSight's Quakeometers, and something else to look forward to very soon is we'll be getting data back from the Parker Solar Probe. There is so much going on, we can't possibly report on it all, but we'll certainly be bringing you lots of highlights. Our final news story is about Barnard Star and a possible exoplanet. This comes via Jonty Horner and Jake Clark from the University of Southern Queensland, who are reporting on a new paper that was published in the journal Nature. The potential discovery of a planet orbiting Barnard's star, the second closest stellar system to the Sun, was announced by researchers today in Nature. This discovery pushes the bounds of what we can do with our best current astronomical instrumentation, so the authors are understandably cautious in claiming a planet candidate rather than a confirmed discovery. The new exoplanet, if it exists, is an icy world 
just over three times the mass of Earth and has only been uncovered as a result of an exhaustive search by teams across the globe. Shining 16 times too faintly to see with the unaided eye, Barnard's star is an ancient red dwarf, significantly older than the Sun. Aside from the Alpha Centauri system, it's the closest star to our solar system. Barnard's star's biggest claim to fame is the rate at which it is tearing across the night sky. It moves so quickly and so rapidly against the background stars that it would cross the diameter of a full moon in a little over a hundred years. In the middle of the last century, astronomer Peter van der Kamp was convinced Barnard's star was accompanied by two Jupiter-mass planets, and over several decades, starting in the late 1930s, he studied Barnard's star, taking myriad images and observing it moving against the background stars. And rather than moving in a straight line, his observations suggested Barnard's star was wobbling as it moved, rocking backwards and forth, as though pulled by unseen companions. His data invoked the presence of two planets tugging the star around as it moved through space. But despite their best efforts, astronomers elsewhere could find no evidence of van der Kamp's worlds. Where his observations showed a wobbling star, theirs showed no such wobble, just a linear motion straight through space. What was going on? Van der Kamp's observations were made using a large refracting telescope and astronomers eventually realised that the telescope's main objective lens had been cleaned and modified several times during the decades of his study and these changes caused the apparent position of the Barnard star to shift back and forth relative to the bluer background stars. The Jupiter-mass planets around Barnard's star were no more. Successive surveys ruled out even smaller planets. Astronomers are now confident no planet larger than 10 Earth masses exists in the system. Which brings us to our new find. The new discovery. The new candidate planet, Barnard's star B, is thought to have a mass between those of Earth and Neptune in the solar system. While no such planet exists in our backyard, the Kepler spacecraft revealed that such planets are common in the cosmos. Barnard star B orbits its host at a distance of 60 billion kilometres. That might suggest a warm, temperate world, but Barnard's star is a dim object, far less luminous than our sun, and as a result, Barnard's star B lies beyond what is known as the ice line, so far from the star that water would freeze harder than rock. This means it must be a frigid world. Because Barnard's star is so close, the separation between the planet and the star in the sky will be relatively large, if the planet is really there, we will likely get our first direct images confirming its existence within the next 10 years. Beyond that, who knows? One thing we have learned through the exoplanet era is that 
Where one planet lurks, more are sure to follow. If the existence of Barnard Star B is confirmed, it may indicate there are other, smaller worlds orbiting this ancient star and very close neighbour. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave!